0: Miracy.
1: They either market it in a way that feels good, but they get no clients. Right. But they they at least get to sleep at night, or they can market in a way that works, but now they can't sleep at night. Yeah. And it's a terrible place to be.
0: I'm Katie Valentine, and you're listening to Soul Savvy Business. I am a soul-minded spiritual entrepreneur, Christian minister, and a New Testament scholar. Don't let any of that scare you. I support all paths to the divine, and I use tools such as chakras, dreams, and intuition to get there. On this podcast, we explore the intersection of business and spirituality. What do I mean by that? Too often, we separate our business selves from our spiritual selves. But in doing that, we don't leverage the full potential of either one. This series aims to help you fall in love with your own soul so that you can live your most fulfilling and successful life. On today's episode, I'll be talking with an author and entrepreneur with a passion for personal development and ethical marketing practices. But first... In every episode, I offer a tip around abundance and your spiritual journey. The little abundance tip for you for today comes from something I did this morning. I'm sharing it with you simply because it made me very happy. I recently ordered a candle recycling kit because I burn a lot of beeswax candles that are pretty eco-friendly and non-toxic. And as a result, I have a lot of half-melted, weirdly-shaped beeswax lumps sitting around all over the place. I can definitely afford to buy new candles, and don't worry, I keep the local candle makers in business. But I also like to be craftsy. So this morning, I made my first ever candle, and it was so joyous. I melted down the wax, I put in this wick, and I slowly poured the melted wax and made a solidified, now recycled beeswax candle. And it just brought this huge smile to my face all day long because A, I made a candle, B, it fits in with my ethics of reuse. And see, it was like cooking, but without all the ingredients that I can no longer eat. Well, how does this relate to abundance? It's really about the joy of it. This candle burns right beside me all day on my desk and looking at it made me incredibly happy. And it really is those happy, positive feelings when we take joy in simple things in life that helps bring abundance into our awareness and into our life. And we put that in the quantum field and then we bring it right back to us. So let me encourage you to do something that brings you joy. It doesn't have to be making candles, of course, but I'm really curious to know what your candle project is to light up a little bit of abundance in your life. My guest today is Tad Hargrave. Tad runs a company called Marketing for Hippies. Which he founded on the idea that businesses do not have to choose between ethics and effectiveness. He's toured the world teaching marketing techniques that feel good and deliver results. Welcome to the show, Tad.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm just curious if anything resonated with you about, you know, making homemade candles.
1: Yeah, well, it's at the end of the day, all of our abundance comes from the land. And the there's that you've probably heard the story about the the american businessman down in mexico
0: i don't think i have
1: so the the short version is american businessman very successful goes down to mexico and he sees a mexican fisherman pulling up his boat and he strikes up a conversation and he says so uh, yeah how do, you, how do you spend your days and he says well senor i say you know i get up around 6 a.m i go out fishing i come back and uh go back uh, you know we, we cook up some fish we eat, and I do a bit of work around the house, and we have a siesta. I do a bit more work, and then you know maybe have some more fish for dinner, and then I go and sit on the porch and I play guitar and sing to the señoritas. And the American businessman says, "Oh, well, you got this all wrong." Well, you know this fisherman's very impressed by this American businessman who clearly makes a lot of money and, and more more uh, successful than him. And so he says, "Oh, what, what do you mean, señor?" He says, "Well, he says here's what you do: get up 5 a.m." He said, why do I get up earlier? Well, because you'll you'll have another hour to catch more fish. He says, sir, but I don't need more fish. He said, but that's the best part. You don't need it. Surplus. So here's what you do. To catch those fish, you go and then you sell them on the market and you make some money on that. Oh, I see, senor. Yeah, it'd be nice to have some more money. And then you save that money up. You save that money up. And then you're going to pay somebody else to come out in the boat with you and fish. But senor, that would catch so much fish. I don't need that at all. That's exactly the point. Again, surplus. So now you have this whole extra load of fish that you don't need. And you can sell that, and you can make more money. Oh, see, senor, I see. So, and then, and then, and then, you get a, you get a bigger boat, and then you can hire more people, and eventually you get these bigger nets. You know, you can keep doing this until eventually you got a, just a trawler that can just go scrape the bottom of the ocean. You can get so many fish; it's incredible. Oh, senor, I've never even dreamed of these things. This is amazing. He says, "Yes, yeah, this is incredible." He says, "I haven't even started because then you build that up for a while, then you'd go public, you do an IPO, boom, and you sell it, and you're a gazillionaire." You know it's amazing. What happens then? I don't know. You do whatever you want. Get up at six a.m., go out fishing, catch some fish, come back, have a siesta, <laughs> you know, play guitar, sing to the senoritas in the evening. <laughs> so, it's um, you know, one of my colleagues, Alex Baisley, said one of the smartest things I've ever heard around business. He said, when you're thinking about your business, start with the lifestyle you want to have, and then back your business model into that. Never do it the other way around. Never start with the business model and then think about the lifestyle. Start with what is it that brings you joy? You know, how do you want to spend your days and weave everything around that?
0: You know, I find that really helpful and really interesting. And there's all of these business strategies and visualization tools and techniques, for instance, where you picture yourself in the car that you want. And for me, I think that is so not motivating. I I don't care what kind of car I have. I do care about it being safe, and all I really want it to do is get me from point A to point B. Um, Me visualizing myself behind the wheel of a Ferrari is zero motivating for me. So that story helps put this kind of strategy into perspective, and I really like what you say about starting with the lifestyle you desire and working backwards from there. So Tad, one thing I ask every single guest is what word or words you use to describe whatever it is that you consider to be the divine. I'm really curious what that might be for you.
1: You know, I mean, God is fine with me. But, you know, the I think it's the Anishinaabe in Canada. One of their words is Gichimanodu. Uh, I think I have it right, which means sort of great mystery. And that, that also works for me.
0: I like that. Maybe tell us a little more about what that means for you.
1: Well, it's interesting. There's two different etymologies from two different parts of the world around mystery. The Greek word for mystery, I believe, also has this connotation of it shuts the mouth. And I think there's two meanings of that. One, you stop talking, which is probably useful for most of us. But second, you stop consuming. You stop eating everything, which is such an affliction of the modern world, the consumer culture, just taking in. Uh, and then the I think it's the Dagara people in Africa, their word was uh, for mystery, that thing which you cannot eat meaning they're not supposed to digest it, that there's some things that are mysterious and maybe degeneralized far too broadly. For humans, there's at least two types of mysteries. One, there's the the human-scaled mysteries, childbirth, death, um, heartbreak, all of these. And then there's the cosmic-scaled mysteries. And Martin Shaw, who's a, a brilliant writer and storyteller from Devon, England, wrote a book called Smoke Hole. And he has this beautiful symbolism that he uses or kind of incarnation of it. He said, you know, the earth, that's your prayer mat. And I would say the earth is, that's where we go for our, the human scaled mysteries. But then there's the smoke hole. In so many old houses from around the world, of course, there's a smoke hole. Often the hearth was right in the center of a lot of these traditional homes and the smoke go up through and there'd be a little hole for the smoke to get out. And through that hole you can see the the stars and the moon at night. And you can see the big mystery through that, which is probably a fairly accurate uh summation of the human experience. We only see so much through that hole. There's only so much of the mystery we get to even see as it as it passes by above us. And that human life is a uh, sort of in between those two, the the prayer mat and the smoke hole. And that smoke that goes up, well, you know. There's the umbilicus, there's the tree of life that connects us to them up there, whoever they might be. So that's, that's some of it.
0: Thank you for painting that portrait for us, which is so much more descriptive even than a word or words. And sometimes, you know, the great storytellers can um, say it without really saying it, which is what I feel like you just did. Um, so thank you for that image, those images of the divine. Whoa! I would love to know a little bit about your religious or your spiritual upbringing, what that was like for you when you were growing up. Yeah, uh,
1: United Church (laughs) on Easter and Christmas. And, you know, it was hippie parents. So there was that as the, I guess, the anthroposophy, which I didn't really understand and still don't have much adult grasp of it. And my mom was very clear with my brother and I that uh, we'd have to figure it out. We'd have to figure out our own spiritual path. And she didn't mind whatever, you know, Christianity was what she was brought up. in. my mother's father was a Greek Orthodox minister. And so there was the hellfire brimstone on that side of the family. And then just kind of, I don't know, Christian light. It it wasn't heavy in the rest of the family. And so I, I didn't have a lot of that growing up.
0: What about sort of the informal spirituality growing up or less formal in terms of institutional?
1: yeah. I was always curious. I was insanely curious as a younger man, you know, as a boy, uh, what's it all about? I I wanted to have those conversations with just about everybody, but there wasn't really anyone around. And I don't think parents are always the best people to talk with because there's, you know, so much stuff between kids and their parents and it can get in the way of that conversation, uh, which is why grandparents or uncles and aunts Mm -hmm, or, you know, um, other elders in the community play such a role. But there weren't a lot of those around when I was growing up. So there was a lot of reading books. It was more the personal growth. I remember one of the first books that I I came across in the, I don't know, personal growth nonfiction realm was uh, Leo Bascalia wrote a book called Love. And I remember distinctly being on the number five bus sitting outside at 124th Street, 102nd Avenue, and the sunlight was streaming in on me. And I remember feeling this just blissful contentment reading that book and feeling like, oh, somebody else is thinking about this. And and uh, they're thinking about all the things I think about, but they're so much older and wiser. And I just felt like I discovered all the treasures of the universe in reading that book.
0: Yeah, you've just put it on my to-be-read list, so I don't think I've read mm. that one. So thank you for that. Well, you gave us a little bit of a glimpse with your description of abundance with the earth and with your description of the divine as well. So I'm really curious, what does your spirituality look like now?
1: Personally, as a practice, the work of Byron Katie, who wrote a book called Loving What Is, if I have a main practice, I haven't done it for a while, That's that's been my main practice. And it seems to me, there's this relationship between uh, stories and spells and so much of the rest of my life as it seems to me now, anyways, is going to be about spell breaking in some way. And that spells, the consequence they seem to have on us is they stop us from seeing reality clearly. We can't see the world as it is. Somebody says to you when you're a kid, you're stupid or you're ugly or you can't sing or you can't dance or you're weird. And that's a spell uh, that gets put on the kid. And they can carry that their whole life. And the story, on the other hand, makes the world more available to people. It seems to me, I mean gosh, there's a lot to say about Jesus and and his parables, but it seems to me that in the parables and the parabolic function is to hand the world back to people for reconsideration, so that when Jesus says don't cast pearls before swine, of course there's the you know, there's all the racist implications about that, about the pearls being the word and the swine being Jews. And then there's the other implication that most people go with which says Uh, you've got this really precious thing and these people just can't appreciate it. They don't know how to, you know, admire what you have and don't waste your time with them. Uh, So, you know, you're a little bit better than them because look at you, you've got pearls. And I got this from Stephen Jenkinson and his observation was this. He said, maybe what Jesus was saying was, so you're trying to feed jewelry to pigs and just handed it back to people for their own examination to look at the formulation they'd become so sure about. Maybe when he said, you know, a man can't ride a two different donkeys going in two different directions. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon at the same time. Yeah. And maybe Jesus was actually saying, you can't, can you? It would be good if you could. It would be good if you could tend to the material life and the spiritual. But I'm looking at you, and no judgment, but I'm seeing that you can't do that. You don't seem to have that capacity. So it strikes me that that's the function of storytelling or parables, is it's not a lecture, it's not a diatribe, it's not propaganda, it's not a marketing message, it's just an image, it's a story that gives us the space and the freedom to uh, encounter the world.
0: Your words about the parables really um, strike home with me, because I've done quite a bit of study on them, and they are kind of onion layers, right? They're... I, I like your description. One of my colleagues at Heretic Happy Hour described them maybe as they're like a Zen Cohen. Yeah. Where we can meditate on their meaning, and just even in this short time we've been talking, you're such a storyteller, and um, we'll we'll get into your kind of ethics around marketing and how you run your business really soon. But it's even describing your spirituality through a story seems that it can't quite be condensed to any one thing, but it's a multi layered part of who
1: you are well that's one of garrison keeler's observations i think it was him and he said uh he said, you get to a certain age and you realize there are no answers there's only stories mm. so that feels very true for me um i think storytelling is how all of our ancestors conveyed what they would learned about how to live on particular pieces of land how to be a good human being how to be good to each other the relationship to the big mystery of it all
0: well a little bit about how your spirituality influences the way you think about money, the way you think about abundance, especially, you know, in, in the kind of work that you do.
1: It's a strange thing, hey, the the whole money conversation because relatively new on the human scene, it seems. And then you get uh, i mean just money you used to be all barter and trade, gift economy. There's no doubt Lewis Hyde wrote a book called um, the Gift, I believe, which I, I can't recommend highly enough to anybody, but it's about the spirituality, the spiritual potency and implications of gifting. And that was how it was all done, uh, all gift. And then at a certain point, you move to money, and then you it just becomes further and further abstracted. It seems like the earliest writings were actually accounting, covered on those clay tablets in uh, Sumeria.
0: Yeah, yeah. Lots of mundane stuff there, yeah.
1: And so, you know, things got to a scale where we just couldn't remember anymore. So we had to write it down, which has its own consequences and is itself a consequence of something. And then you get interest charging on money and you get the Federal Reserve and that whole racket. Uh, So there's, I suppose, distinctions to be drawn between money and the financial system. That at some level, money is an abstracted version of you gave me two chickens and here's this little piece of paper and I owe you to remember that. But we can use it for other things. And I think it's something to be wary of. As soon as we move into abstraction, it's good to keep an eye on that. But I don't have a fundamental problem with that. I don't have a fundamental problem with people in a free market way, meaning, you know, a farmer's market or a craft show, trading and doing that on their own and coming to their own conclusions about what's fair. I think that's beautiful. I'd like to see more of it. Yeah, it's funny. I realized one day that this word marketing, it's a verb. Now that sounds so obvious, but It's a verb of what? And of course, the root of that is market. And I know it sounds like this is just too simple. And uh, I'm late to the party on this one. But in the modern times, we tend to think of the market as the stock market. But the market is actually one of the most human things there is.
0: It's the meeting place, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's where we get together and say, here's what I've been up to since I saw you Mm -hmm. last. I made this thing. And And they've done studies where they looked at how many conversations happen, let's say, in a Tesco or a a co-op or a Safeway or Savon versus at the farmer's market. Of course, 10 times the conversations happen at the farmer's market. So it is the meeting place. This is where we get together once a week or every day to share with each other and to catch up. And it's become this abstracted monstrosity that's, that's gone so out of control. But to me, what marketing is, it's the market being itself. It's the market doing its thing. That's the verb. That's the gerund form of market. So when you go to a a market and you smell those smells and you hear the sounds, you know, you close your eyes. That's the market marketing, doing its thing. And so that's beautiful. If you go to one of these places that sells all these antique rugs, that's a whole day-long thing. You go in, you look at the rugs, and you're poking around. They just think you're a looky loo. They're not paying you much attention. But then you start asking certain questions and they can tell you're interested. And at a certain point, they close the doors, shutters go up, they bring out the tea, and now they're getting to know about you and your family. And there's a whole rich conversation before the purchase happens. So th- this old school hospitality, uh, you know, of humans appears in the transaction. A deep regard for each other, a deep way of, you know, the namaste uh, thing. You're divine, and I'm divine, and we're going to treat each other as if that's true.
0: Let's talk about the market or the marketplace being a place of basic human social interaction sure does make marketing a lot less scary. It reminded me of the ancient Greek Agora that was the meeting place for social, religious, political, and community life, definitely where people would sell their wares and interact with one another. Those of us in North America might not have the model of the ancient marketplace where people go and come and sell and talk and socialize, but it is still very much alive in the Middle East. I was in Turkey about 13 years ago and I was with a group of women and I stayed on after they left and came back to North America. I decided to strike out on my own and this was in the days of the early iPhones, but before there were international plans that were affordable when you were traveling. So although I had my iPhone, I was getting around with one of those old paper maps. I was on my way to find something and it was cold that day and raining and I was near the tram station and looking around on the map and just could not figure out where I was. I was pretty lost. A nice young man stopped and just asked me in perfect English, excuse me, do you speak English? I said, yes. And he said, may I help you? You look lost. It was the perfect invitation to Middle Eastern hospitality. I said, I would love it if you could help me explain where I was going. And he told me how to get there. And then he said, first, do you have time for a break and some tea? And I said, I do. I'm not in a rush. And he invited me into his family's rug shop. This was a beautiful shop filled with very expensive rugs that they imported and exported and had Turkish artisans make. And they were a global business. It was delightful and they treated me as an honored guest and they set me up with tea and cookies and just chatted with me about my life, my work, family. I showed them pictures of my dog and it was quite a moving experience. I was a struggling graduate student at the time and certainly could not afford any of their very beautiful rugs. And I think they understood that they didn't pressure me. So this marketplace interaction was actually not about selling but about human connection. And they told me as I was preparing to leave, That after you come into someone's home and you have tea, you are their friend and their guest for forever. And I appreciated that so much. This marketplace that Tad talks about is not about selling. It's about interacting and it's about connecting and it's about making the human connection. The services that you sell are a natural outgrowth of that human interaction. And part of natural human interactions are bartering and selling and buying and trading and being really proud of the work that we put out there. But I know that we don't have a shot at selling anything if we don't show up to the market. Well, um, let's talk a bit about your business. Can you tell us a little bit about your company how you Mm -hmm. got started, and who it is that you serve. So
1: it's called Marketing for Hippies.
0: Which I love. That's a perfect name.
1: Thank you. Me too. Well, you know, that came from I would be at parties or events and people say, what do you do? And I had to have something to say. And (laughs) that was my joke. That was my bit of banter was Marketing for Hippies. And they would usually laugh. Oh, they really need it. Or, oh, isn't that an oxymoron? And and it, it took me years, genuinely years, before I thought, I wonder if that URL is available. And to my complete shock, it was. I couldn't believe <laughs> nobody had snatched that yet. So, so yeah, I help hippies figure out how to market their stuff better. And I think for so many of them, as you said in the intro, they feel like they have to choose between ethics and effectiveness. They either market it in a way that feels good, but they get no clients. Right. But they, they at least get to sleep at night. Or they can market in a way that works, but now they can't sleep at night. Yeah. And it's a terrible place to be. Because neither one of those are workable in the long term. And so that's fundamentally my work is how do we, it's not just bridging those two, but can we see that, you know, and if you'll indulge another image, you see those old stone archways, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the the two columns on the side and the arch itself. Yeah. And of course, there's that keystone in the middle that, that locks them in. And I would say that that keystone is the marketplace. And the the stones that get so missed in this arrangement are the foundation stones on either side, because no foundation stone is just going to crumble. And on one side, I think the foundation stone is what I would say a relationship. On the other side, it's goodwill, which is another way of saying what we've been talking about the whole time, that it needs to honor the way we market our business, the way we engage in the marketplace has to tend to the fact that there are relationships everywhere that we're not separate from. Others in the market, including those in our own industry, whose reputations we could destroy by the way we act. And then there's the uh, there's a relationship, relationship, and there's sustenance. Sustenance is the other side, meaning it's got to feed you. It has to work. I mean, it has to bring put food on the table uh, in case you like eating food. So it has to it has to work. It has to be effective. So we've got this goodwill relationship on one side and sustenance, food, effectiveness on the other. And the, the marketplace is, is where they meet, which is important that, to just acknowledge that the market doesn't exist in the absence of those two. It's those two together that occasions the marketplace. If you take out one of those sides, there is no marketplace anymore. So that they meet. And the fact that they meet, where they meet is the market. But the fact that they meet is our outrageous good fortune. Because what an amazing thing that we don't have to choose between them.
0: That's really cool. And listeners who have heard Tad on one of the other Miracy FM podcasts may already be a little familiar with this. But I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about your Pay What You Can events and how maybe how that emerged.
1: Well, desperation, like most <laughs> ideas. I, I was in Fairfield, Iowa, which is a beautiful town. I hope to go back there someday. And so I show up in Fairfield, Iowa to an intro, which I had two intro workshops, thank God. The first one had three people at it, which is mortifying to be <laughs> teaching a <laughs> workshop on marketing and have three people sign up. So anyways, that, that went how it went. And the next night there were 16 people. And I had this whole package that was way beyond what I should have been charging. Maybe let's say two thousand dollars, and it included a bunch of coaching sessions afterwards. And anyways, I was I was um, I, I took myself too seriously, as we often do when we're young. But I said to them, "Look, I'm here for the weekend, anyways. Nobody has signed up for my weekend workshop. Why don't you just come? No follow up included. Just pay me whatever you can." So it was. Because as a kid, I used to watch Street Performers. I used to watch The Buskers. and I wanted to be a busker so bad. And I tried, but it's very difficult. And but so I just, re- I knew that move of pay what you can at the very end. So I said, pay at the end of the workshop, whatever you want to pay. But I did it. And people paid really generously. And I didn't just make a little bit of money. I made, I mean, for my age and what, yeah, I just, wow, I made money. And I just thought that was so easy. And I didn't have to do any big pitch or roll or high pressure or anything. And I liked that. And so then I did it again. The next workshop was in, um, Pay Can was in Halifax. And so, you know, there's a lot I learned along the way, but it felt so wonderful. So that's the story of how it came about.
0: Well, and so with your the clients who you serve now, you know, your fellow hippies, and you're teaching them how to make sales, how to do marketing without compromising their ethics, without selling their souls. And I'm just... Curious, do a lot of them have some hangups around money?
1: That's mostly what they have. How can you not? If you're even vaguely counterculture, it's hard not to have some anger about money. I mean, Jesus had (laughs) his, he got angry about, you know, some of the ways that money was dealt with. So to me, that's, it's not a bad thing. So when people come up with money issues and their consternations and confusions and and cantankerousness around money, I mostly want to say thank you. Like, thanks for noticing thanks for paying attention to the world. thanks for seeing how desperately unfair it all is. There's so much stuff around money and the you know the deep hang-ups around who am I to teach and get paid for it um there's a whole ebook I wrote with that title because it's it's so common it's so prevalent but then there's also some afflictions because I think some people they don't question it enough. I think there's a spiritual author Stuart Wild, and he uh, wrote a number of books and one of the things he said was He called the mainstream reality TikTok reality, Mm -hmm. like the clock, just TikTok. And he said, people sometimes will have a spiritual experience that wakes them up out of TikTok. And that could be a sunset, that could be a falling in love, it could be ayahuasca, it could be prayer, it could be whatever. And he said, what's worth noting is the very first instinct that people have when they wake up from TikTok is they want to teach. You know, there's nothing like the zeal of the newly converted, as they say. (laughs) And people are often too young. I mean there's a reason in traditional cultures there was apprenticeship both in spiritual matters and in the mundane woodworking and of course the understanding that there wasn't such a chasm between those two anyways if at all so some people just start too soon but I think for most of my clients they're not posturing they're more collapsed and you know what they'll say often is but you know in traditional cultures the elders wouldn't be paid um you know to do the work to which I say um Are you insane?
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Have you talked to any traditional cultures? There was absolutely payment for the medicine people. It just wasn't cash. It was chickens or it was a gift economy. Some Cree elders I spoke with in Alberta, I mean, they said when they were studying with elders, they spent all their money on gifts for elders. Mm -hmm. They bought horses. Sometimes they bought a car. There were blankets. There was so much giving. Because the understanding of reciprocity, that what you're going to entrust me with is so precious, so I have to try to at least, you have to at least see that I'm trying to match it, though I'll probably fail.
0: I spoke with someone years ago who was considering working with me, and she said, "I, you know, I just don't understand why anyone would need to pay for kind of spiritual coaching. I said, well, if we were living 2,000 years ago, you could come and live at my house, and I could teach you, and you would like cook. And I was like, I don't like to cook, so if you want to do that... You can come on over. And she laughed. And I mean, she, I think she saw the truth of it. And that also it was a joke. I wasn't really inviting her to come and live with me. I was like, you know, yeah, just like you said, it was just a different exchange of energy that people might have had in, you know, in ancient Palestine than we have now. Hmm. Well, what would you say has been your biggest challenge as an entrepreneur? Let me think. I
1: grew up, went to Waldorf, so it was really full hippie. But then I got into the personal growth stuff, which a lot of it is very tied to a kind of capitalist bent anyway. Tony Robbins, you know, I was big into that. I worked for a franchise of his, and I ended up doing sales. And the sales stuff didn't feel good, though. Some of the marketing stuff I learned, I still teach and share today. But that franchise collapsed. And I ended up doing environmental social justice kind of activist gatherings and going to protests and hanging out with all the anarchists. And then I I really had that, you know, to hell with the system and, you know, to hell with the man, all of that. And I really hated, I got this hatred around capitalism. But then I had to reconcile it with, I had all my friends who were trying to start a business, maybe solar power. Maybe they were a holistic practitioner. Maybe there were some of the early life coaches and their marketing was terrible. And they would tell me their ideas. And I, oh, I couldn't stop myself. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. you know, your ideas for marketing are awful. So let me help. And so that was what I had to reconcile. I had to realize that Wall Street is different than Main Street.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: You know, that local independent businesses are different than mega multinational conglomerate corporations that, yes, there's Starbucks, but there's also Ourbucks, you know, there's there's uh, Walmart, but there's Ourmart. There's a different thing. And Michael Schumann, of course, his work around local economics, he wrote a book called Going Local, The Small Mart Revolution, and Judy Wick, who ran the White Dog Cafe in Philadelphia, whose tagline should often say, I use good food to lure innocent customers into social activism. (laughs) But that's what I finally settled on. These are different beasts. They're just not the same. Are they both capitalism free market? I guess so. But there's a kind of cartel capitalism that the elite have amongst each other. And uh, that's not okay. And we have to do something about that. But we also got to sustain ourselves in the meantime. Yeah, How do we do it? And it's not easy. It's not easy to, um, in the short term, I'll say that, in the short term, it is desperately difficult to marry ethics and effectiveness. But in the long term, that's all there is. Because in Mm -hmm. the long term, it's all word of mouth. It's all reputation. But you can't get that kind of word of mouth and be inconsistent on the ethics.
0: That leads really beautifully into the next question, which is, for you, what does being in alignment mean, if anything?
1: Yeah, well, if you look at the etymology of alignment, you've got this L-I-G in it, yeah? Yeah. And it's the same as in religion and ligament, also connected to legacy. Here's another word I'll toss in obligation. right? So we have religion, obligation, alignment, um, legacy. The LIG, what it seems to mean is something like um, a tether or a tie, like a ligament. It's something that takes things that normally are not going in harmony with each other, and it brings them into this temporary, yeah, kind of alignment. So I suppose to me, alignment has to mean I'm tethered to something. So then that becomes the question. What are you tethered to? What are you wanting to line yourself up with? If you're truing wood in carpentry, there's a way of you're trying to bring things into that. They're right parallel with each other right now, or now they're perpendicular with each other. And you're trying to bring the proper angle of alignment. If one is trying to bring oneself into alignment of just profits only, and uh, profits with with a F, um, the other one might not be so bad, but profits or getting the sale, you know, I'm going to be in integrity and in alignment with my agenda to get people to say yes. I mean, that's alignment. So I don't know if alignment is good or bad. It just means you have lined yourself up and tethered yourself to something. And what is that thing? That's, that's my understanding of it. And the case I would make is you tether yourself to, um, a commitment to the truth, you know, and in marketing specifically translation would be the truth of the question, is this a fit or not?
0: Well, and for you, how do you know when you're not in alignment with that truth for you?
1: Well, ma'am, I'm getting so biblical today. By their fruits, shall you know them?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's very apparent. In the short term, it's not. This is what's so baffling to people. They say Ted, you talk about this ethics, and I agree. I think the ethics are important. But you see, I went to this workshop, and they did all these shady tactics, and they made a million dollars in sales. But here's what I see from the inside. Okay, you're right. They made a million dollars in sales in one day, in one workshop. That's very impressive. But did you know that the next day, ninety percent, nine zero of those people called and asked for a refund? Like, did you know that? That's what happens. Oh, I didn't know that. Right, because you're not in the industry. And did you know that that of the 10% that remained, a bunch of them weren't a fit. And so they didn't give good word of mouth and they might even complain to their friends about it. I mean, how effective is this actually in the long term? Simon Sinek, you're probably familiar with his book, Start With Why. I think it's one of the very first things in the book. But he says, basically he says, I can't say that these shady manipulative tactics don't work they do. It's so sad in a way, but they work. All the false scarcity, the hype, the urgency that it's not real, the social proof, the, the schmoozing, it all works predictably well. And it can absolutely get people to buy in the short term. But what it cannot do, he points out, is get people to be loyal in the long term. Mm-hmm. And I remember I asked a dear friend of mine, David Wolf, I asked him at one point, I said, how do you define illness? And he said, illness is an inconsistency between the will of the soul and the will of the personality. And uh, I can't come up with a better definition than that myself, Uh, and certainly not for marketing either. You know, when marketing is your soul is aligned with your personality, it's a beautiful thing to see. Mm -hmm. And when it's not, it's painful to watch.
0: Yeah. And yeah, so for you, do you ever feel yourself or in the past, have you felt yourself sort of veer, i don't know, veer off in that direction or maybe when you were younger and first getting started and have to kind of course correct?
1: you know, less so in business. Um, it was more in dating <laughs> that <was where> the, <laughs> maybe I was you know, less ethical or or uh, less of a stand-up guy than I could been. That was probably where more of my neurotic or um My willingness to compromise came, which I'm not proud of, but you're young and stupid.
0: Well, before we wrap up, Tad, any wisdom you'd like to share with the listeners, a final bit of wisdom or advice?
1: Well, one of my friends in um, Edmonton, Lewis Cardinal, he's a Cree fellow, indigenous, and he said that his uh, elders had told him or made the observation that when babies come into the world, they come in with their fists closed. And that the reason they come in like that is because they have something to give to the community. And so one of the major functions of culture, distinct maybe from civilization, is to make sure those gifts are delivered. The understanding that if they're coming with them, we must need them for reasons we may not even fully understand. And it seems to me that our role in each other's lives in the absence of culture should be as much as possible To help recognize those gifts in others, to affirm them and to support them in coming out and not to distract people. Take the etymology of the word seduce, I think means something like to draw away from. And when people are drawn away from why they're here or the gifts they have to give, that actually has immense consequences on the world. And I see this in so much of the unethical marketing, of course. People are seduced into spending their time, their money, their energy on things that aren't going to support them, that aren't what they need. And so to me, that's serious this contravening of people's sovereignty and consent.
0: Thank you so much for being here. This has been just a wonderful and soulful conversation. What is the best way for people to find you?
1: Marketingforhippies.com. There's a bunch of free stuff there. I've got an ethical marketing starter kit that people can check out, uh, which is a full footage of the day-long workshop I used to charge for, it, but now so it's available for free. And I've got too many videos on YouTube and, and, uh, Uh, a lot on Instagram as well at marketing for hippies, but you can find it all through my website.
0: Awesome. I know people will be headed over there. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. I'm Katie Valentine, and you've been listening to Soul Savvy Business. Soul Savvy Business is part of the Miracy FM podcast network which includes shows such as Just Between Coaches and Once Upon a Business. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. I wrote this episode with Melissa Deal and Cynthia. Melissa Deal assembled the episode, and Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was by Post Office Sound. To make sure you don't miss any great episodes coming up on Soul Savvy Business, do follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, we really appreciate a start review. It is the best way to help get these ideas out there to more people. And thank you. We will see you next time.